one. Hello and welcome to Sounding Point Podcast, actually episode three, even though I, I wrongly said episode three last time, but now it's actually episode three and we have our first ever guest on Sounding Point Podcast and who better to be our inaugural guest than Jeremy Cohen. He's the multi-Grammy nominated how many Grammys have you been nominated for? Don't be modest. Uh, actually, uh, uh, three for the group for Quartet San Francisco, and but a total of uh, I think seven for our projects, right. which included the larger community involved in making our records, right. and just as important as the musicians, our engineers, and our composers. So seven, seven in total, but who's counting? <laughs> there we go. That's it. And um, so you're the, the violinist, composer, arranger, founder of Quartet San Francisco. You have a um, sheet music label, Violin Jazz, as well as uh, you're the founder of a, an online teaching platform called String Masters. So I don't know, don't know how you do it all, but um, <laughs> here we are. And, um, and I, yeah, it's, it's great to be uh, also in Quartet San Francisco, that's of course how I, I got to know you. And, and I think today it'd be nice to um, dive into some of your influences as a violinist and a performer and kind of what you, how you approach performing and teaching. And um, I thought, I mean, to kick off the conversation, how are you, how are you dealing with right now? <laughs> how are you dealing with the uh, world? The world is give uh, on a few things for me recently. One is um, with the pandemic, I've, I've been uh, forced inside. Um, I'm, I'm used to being a California boy and getting out of the house and enjoying the weather and going to places and seeing things. And I think this recent uh, pandemic has, has recalculated all of that. So it's forced us in. Um, I have tried to make the best of that situation. I have always, as an artist, um, wanted to have more discipline as an artist and time and effort going into my creative process. So the pandemic has also offered me, involuntarily, that opportunity. And I, I need to see it that way. Mm -hmm. I really do. Uh, uh, along with all the things you mentioned, you know, I've also started doing more production work, more video work, more audio recording and taking all of this material that I've collected for Quartet San Francisco and, um, you know, having this lockdown time to actually force myself to learn new skills. This time has also offered me a new grandchild. <laughs> so while uh, under these, you know, agreed uh, miserable circumstances that a lot of us are facing. The world, the world also challenges me by, by uh, bringing joy, mm -hmm. uh, along with, you know, worry about the the pandemic and the health of my grandchild, who, thank goodness, is doing great and his family's doing great. But they've brought a new child into the world, so there's been some. I've had some socially distant visits with a new grandchild. I actually was a motivation for us to go out and get a test so that we could actually have one very small window of opportunity to hold him. Okay. 
first time in uh, two months. This is really, these are really unusual circumstances. So that's, you know, and then all the work composition, working with the quartet, find, redefining ourselves as a group and finding a way to press forward. You know, there's a lot of groups that would probably throw in the towel because they can't do concerts, but we are, we're reaching in collectively to find our own resourcefulness and a way to continue to create ourselves. So the pandemic has offered me uh, some, some negatives and an opportunity to really create some new positives in my life for which I am very grateful. Absolutely. Interesting. So I feel like this is a good, um, it's a good example of almost, I guess one of the other topics I want to cover um, in general with this podcast, but I think it's particularly interesting asking you about it is how you, um, interact with the world of music making in a way that you're not limited to one aspect of it, where you're not focusing, okay, I'm all auditions, I'm all performing, I'm all teaching. You have a way of kind of um, using the situation to, to learn something new, you know? So just the example of, of using the opportunity of this pandemic to like, like what, techno what technologies have you, you been developing your skills in? Over the over the time of this pandemic, well, I would say particularly um, working in video Final Cut. You know, that's a proper video program, and we know that the world of musicians out there rely on on the internet for for exposure beyond the audiences we can reach. Mm -hmm. So there are so many levels of skill involved with video and filmmaking outside of just plopping a video camera down and, and filming a show. We all have seen plenty of that and with varying degrees of success. But trying to uh, learn the technology that will help uh, me be expressive in the world of video, like we, like we are expressive in the world of music. There's one thing to just to learn how to, to run a video or, or record a track, but it's another thing to try to offer a bird's eye view by virtue of making a video of what I, my experience of playing in a quartet or your experience of playing in a quartet can be. Where do my eyeballs go when I am playing in a group, in an ensemble? You know, I'm looking at Joe when Joe is playing the primary line. And so I, I think I'm answering your question. I, I, I've definitely upped my uh, video skills and also, I think, as you mentioned earlier, String Masters, the online teaching platform is something that is constantly being honed and refined to uh, create an opportunity for the community of string players, teachers, and students to have the highest possible quality experience with online teaching and master classes. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've actually been working on for the last two years. Um, and we were just starting to release it as the pandemic hit, which caused a whole new set of parameters for us. But String Masters has uh, grown and developed, and it, it's, it's my preferred teaching platform online, no question. The quality is far, uh, the experience is a far better experience than some of those other online platforms we won't mention here. Good <laughs> um, using String Masters too, and it, it was definitely interesting, um, you know, being aware of your developing it for a long time. And, and then the moment this pandemic hit was the, the moment, coincidentally, 
during Masters was starting to get to that point of people using it and it getting out into the world. I was like, wow, the, the timing, you know, with all the unfortunate things of the last year, the timing seemed to be pretty good on that one. <laughs> so. Um, it was, we were not, uh, we, we could not anticipate the, the level of need yeah. uh, for, uh, for a, a high quality studio teaching platform. I mean, we always knew that the, the necessity for it was out there and that people would eventually come to it and choose it. But the pandemic really forced a lot of people to search quickly. And uh, we've had, you know, uh, fortunately, a lot of organic growth without a lot of promotion by just teachers speaking to other teachers and saying, you know what, I'm using this platform. And it, it really helps my teaching experience and it makes it better for me and the students. So, you know, we're grateful for that. Yeah, it's um, really hard for musicians because our profession is playing for people live in probably the last thing that's going to come back, which is live staged performances where people are gathered together in an audience. But at the same time, this pandemic has been an opportunity for teachers. I mean, I've been teaching exclusively online for the last few months, and it's been a, a lifesaver um, in so many ways. And, and even now, um, Quartet San Francisco, we're planning on, um, on some online kind of streaming performances later to even replace some of the um, performances we lost because we lost a lot of gigs with this, uh, with the pandemic coming on. So it's interesting to see how things are getting replaced. I saw a quote this morning. Sorry, my, did my screen go off? I, I saw a quote this morning and I, I wish I could remember exactly who it was. It was something to do with, um, with the Grammys and, and, uh, but uh, somebody, a very famous musician was quoted as saying, musicians are the first people to have lost their work and the last people to get their jobs back. If you think about the scope of, the, of, the, of what's happening right now, those of us, and there are many of us, the colleagues of yours and mine, who we all know really well, mm -hmm. whose primary source of income is live concerts, Freeway Philharmonic, chamber groups, gigs, casuals. Um, we need to keep our eye out for our colleagues who are suffering the most and, and impacted the most. You and I, we already have developed some online savvy and some ability to teach and earn money uh, using, using the internet. And a lot of musicians didn't do that. And um, so I, you know, I wonder if, if, if we can, uh, you know, reach out into our community and find ways to help yeah. give our colleagues opportunities, new opportunities to find ways to survive and, and teach some lessons and, you know, share their knowledge with people. What, one interesting thing happened to me, and that was somebody that I used to work with worked for a big company in San Francisco who had gone all online for their meetings. And they actually called me to play the first five minutes of a company meeting. So it was a few hundred people, you know, on a, on, for a big internet-based company, and they were having a weekly status report. And the five minutes before the hour, I started performing. Then I was introduced, and I played for the next five minutes. And uh, they paid me a small fee for doing it, and they also told everyone in the company that I had a Venmo and that they could uh, give tips. And I actually... You know, I made another 
small, but you know, it's the, it's the, the, the it's the gesture of, of what people are doing, reaching out to musicians. And I think the sensitivity to what's going on for us right now is it's out there. I mean, there's a lot of hope out there in the world. Yes, absolutely. You want to be, um, on one hand, the uh, pandemic has offered a lot of opportunity for being entrepreneurial and getting out there. But yeah, you don't want to forget about the, the people who are hurting. And, um, and yeah, if, basically the, the, the more ways we can find to help and, and be involved and, and get musicians and the arts in general back on their feet sooner than later is really important. Um, it, is, it is the thing for, by which our society is measured. It is its art and its culture, not, not so much its wealth and its, and its uh, you know, um, it's you know it's not measured by wealth and property as much as it is by what it's artistically you know collectively uh, uh, defines a society is its art and culture mm -hmm. and we we need to exist in the world but it's it's something much more beyond the pragmatic needs um, interesting I want the pandemic, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. The, the pandemic also offers an, a people an opportunity to uh, realize the value of, of creative arts and, and uh, people who invest their life in the creation of art being, uh, being something that's missed and something that's recognized as important because we are in a marginalized, you know, we're in a marginalized portion of, of society to a certain degree. Those of us who choose to stay in art and music are not, you know, that 1% of us make, you know, gargantuan money and the rest of everybody is, are working as hard as they can to keep their nose above water, to be, even to be able to do this. And we realize we're lucky to. Yeah. So the more people in society that uh, offer their ears and, and their support, uh, you know, uh, shows that the pandemic is also good for people recognizing what, what they're missing by not being able to get out. Absolutely. I was thinking on a personal, um, on a personal level, it would be interesting to, um, interesting to explore kind of how you, um, because I feel like as artists, we almost have this, uh, this zeal to spread art and to share art and to, we have, we have like this automatic desire to spread what and share what we're doing. And, and we all come, at that from different experiences and different histories, but somehow there's something in music and there's something in the arts that like drives us to share it. That's so uh, important and urgent. And I think it's interesting to learn like how that, um, how any musician individually experience, first experience that like drive, that artistic um, aspiration. So, I, so um, I thought it'd be fun to explore kind of how you got started in music and how you got started on, really on your artistic journey. So, so when did you uh, start playing violin? I think it was seven, I was in second grade. Uh, I was, I, uh, I, it should be noted, I guess, that both of my parents were singers and met as singers in New York, um, got married and moved out to California. And they had two sons before me that were also involved in music. So, the presence of music in my early life was not extraordinary. It was ordinary. But my parents were 
eclectic for their time. If you think, you know, I was born in 57. So let's say I was coming into full consciousness in the early 60s as a, as a toddler and as a young person aware of music. My, my parents, uh, my dad always said that there were the, you know, it's always been referred to the great, the three great Bs, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, or Bach, Brahms, and Beethoven. And my dad always used to joke and say that the four Bs were very important. Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, and Brubeck. Oh, yeah. And so I had parents that were, that appreciated jazz. I wouldn't say they were jazz aficionados, but they, my, our family doctor, it turned out, was also the Brubeck's family doctor when the Brubeck family lived in Oakland. So we weren't pals, but we were connected in a, in a way that we were aware of him and aware of his music, we knew that Brubeck was at Mills College and that he was you know, studying with Mio, the, you know, wonderful, uh, famous classical composer. And so the presence of contemporary music was also a part of my very young, very young upbringing. I, of course, learned melodies and show tunes. And, you know, my mom would have sit me down at the piano and sight sing, make me learn songs sitting at the keyboard next to her and have me sing melodies. So I was taught to read music as early as I was taught to read language. And I think also there also lies some of the, you know, um, synapses that were created early on where I didn't learn music as another language. I learned music as a language, as I was learning the English language. Mm -hmm. That uh, fast forward a little bit, I was influenced by my friends and the music that they liked. And I had two older brothers that were listening to pop music. As I said, it was the sixties. I had brothers with different tastes. My, the next older brother, Joel was really into Joni Mitchell, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, you know, and the older one was listening to some of the rock and roll, you know, that was more pop music oriented and not folk oriented. So I had kind of a wide view. And then I was particularly attracted to some of the bands as I, as I got into second and third grade, fourth grade, I was attracted to some of the bands that had violins in them. Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks, Papa John Creech, you know, Hot, hot Tuna, not Hot Tuna, but uh, Jefferson Starship and Hot Tuna, Papa John Creech, um, uh, Sugarcane Harris, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, some of the country bands that were playing, uh, you know, who did Charlie Daniels, did Devil Came Down to Georgia, you know, that came along later in the 70s or 80s, but I mean, those bands were still playing, and whenever I would hear that music, I wanted to emulate it, and we had a hi-fi player, and I'd go and I'd get the record, and I'd put it on the hi-fi, you know, and I'd try to struggle along and play, but in, very importantly, I was studying classical music, but I was listening to the affectations that were happening in the non-classical music and the gestures that were happening, which all boiled down to language, the language of other styles. And I developed an ear early on to begin to emulate that stuff. So that by the time I was in high school, I could bend notes and do slides and make wiggles and you know do things that my classical training were telling me were not necessarily appropriate, but I knew in my heart, you know, that if a violin player was going to play a Beatles song, you were going to inflect 
you were going to inflect the voice a little more like Paul McCartney than you are like uh, Dietrich Fischer Dieskau, you know, or Pavarotti, or you know what I mean. So, yeah. so I started early on to to uh, see multiple paths as a musician and not just a singular path. Uh, I, I, then I got thrown in the back of the violin section for sitting with my legs crossed, quit the orchestra, joined the jazz band, and then got really hands-on training in high school, playing trombone and string bass, uh, and never really excelling very much on those instruments, but sitting in a jazz ensemble playing jazz with jazz musicians helped inform my violin playing. I'll leave it there. I mean, yeah, the rest of the story tells itself. <laughs> I was, so you, um, just in your family, your family was listening to a lot of music growing up. Um, All the time. And was it your idea to start violin? Was it your parents? Oh, I think secretly uh, my parents wanted to have a string quartet okay. of kids. They only ended up with three kids. <laughs> But we have violin, violin, and cello, and the next one for sure was going to be a viola player, but didn't didn't actually come along. Uh, but they offered it, you know. I think they offered it gently and suggested that it would be a really neat instrument if I wanted. They would gladly have us take lessons and that sort of thing. And then uh, once we chose an instrument, my parents set some very simple rules like you must practice 20 minutes a day and on your 14th birthday you will have you will get a we'll get a cake some candles a present and you will choose if you want to continue we'll continue to send you to lessons if you want to quit you're off the hook but that was seven years i mean by the time seven years was up, all my friends were musicians, and I, the, the decision to quit music would have been, you know, I could have been a veterinarian or a, or a constitutional lawyer, or there were some things that, other things that interested me, but my, all my pals, by the time I was 14, I had a community of musicians that were my friends, and still are my friends for that. So you started, and I mean, there was, on one hand, your parents wanted you actively to become a musician. I just think about it all the time as a teacher. It's interesting seeing different um, different family situations and different approaches families have to music. And I think that that one seems to work well, where you have parents who are committed to starting someone on lessons, but then, you know, if they want eventually to move on, that's okay. But you, you had like a, an extended uh, apprentice period where you were, you were doing it one way or the other. So there wasn't that question of whether or not you're going to do it. Yeah, and I saw my brothers doing it too. I mean, I had older, you know, brothers who had older friends, and I was the little brother, and, you know, the older friends were looking at me, and they'd hear me play, and they'd go, oh, nice, Jeremy. You know, I had, there was, there was like input coming in that was telling me that, it, you know, that people were, and remember, I've always said this in the quartet, I am the third child. I did want the attention right. <laughs> of being noticed because I had two older brothers and, and I probably didn't feel like I was noticed as much because my parents had raised two older, two kids already. And so just, you know, it's not like they didn't abandon me you know, they loved me as best as they could, but they also raised two kids before me. And frankly, you know, they were, they had, you know, your, your situation's different because you get banged through once. I mean, you all get sort of an equal, 
That's true. I don't. I don't think know, whether you know it. Or, I don't think. Sorry. I've, I don't think I've mentioned it on my podcast, but I am a triplet, and uh, yes. Yeah, so my experience, even though I had two uh, siblings, was a little different from yours. <laughs> I think I still had. Yeah. I didn't have the excuse you did, but I still want, ha- wanted to get that attention, though. So we have. I think. But we, you all. But you all happened at the same time, so there, in a sense, there was a, a level playing field where my brothers were four and five years older than me. I was already in the position of, you know, hey, it's me, pay attention, pay attention, please. <laughs> and, and and the violin is an extension of that, I, I have to admit. Mm. I, I went out and played yesterday at, at Rossmore at a retirement place, and they haven't had music in there for a couple of months. And the it was two it, i've had two extraordinary experiences and that is watching all those people come out in social distance and sit out on their patios and listen to me play music and seeing how it impacts them how how they how what how they felt about hearing live music and being in the presence of live music it was very moving i just and the other thing that i wanted to say was you know there was a online music festival hosted by Cherith and and um, classical rev and i i played on one of those and i started out in my office and it was during covid and i thought you know here i am again playing in my office and then all of a sudden i noticed 45 people 55 people and people sending notes and 90 people and 95 people and they're still sending me messages and that sense of connection that we have uh, that we're used to as performing for audiences all the time, which had gone with the with the with the pandemic, was momentarily recovered. Uh, and so, it's a real lesson for me about arts and about music and about the meaning of it. Hmm. You know, is to, to experience people connecting with it in whatever way they can and responding to it. There's so much value in that experience for us as performers. It's that third child. Look, they see me. Look, they're feeling something. This is moving them. That's incredibly motivating. Whether it was a number on my computer screen or a, or a heart from somebody I know in New Caledonia or Guam floating across the screen, you know, it's, it's the idea of it that, that we are still able to be artists and connect with people still uh, I, I was as excited as I ever was playing a concert on a stage mm-hmm. when that happens. You know, it was, it was pretty interesting. I'm not sure how I got here from your question. But. I really interesting. And I think that's, you know, there's a synergy between performer and, uh, and audience. It's, it's wild to think that we played at Rossmark's, QSF played at Rossmore earlier this year. And it's wild to think that just a few months ago were this different, you know, where we took it for granted being able to play for a live audience. And now maybe everyone there and maybe you also had a different experience playing live for people. Um, But also that idea of connection and appreciation, it's interesting because as an artist, I think we feel passionately about the music we're playing. We believe in it, we enjoy it. And, but, and there's some, Thing about applause there's something about sharing that with an audience where that affirmation you're getting from the audience is almost a signal to us okay we're well th- they must feel it too then this isn't just inside here it's actually something we're sharing so so as musicians it's 
really necessary to have an audience of some kind. It's just being cooped up in your room without any kind of feedback. It's like, oh my gosh, I, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And I feel like it's I, I don't, equally necessary for audiences to have that connection with performers. I don't even know if all those people on the, on the other side of the computer screen were actually there or if somebody made that up. But the idea for me while I was playing that this was moving people through my computer screen and off to not only all of our community here, but like five or seven foreign countries. It was, it, it was, it was very, very motivating. And it returned me to just being the performer and that which I hadn't felt since the last time I was on stage with the quartet. That moment, uh, don't, you don't recognize, I mean, one doesn't recognize that the, the value of that moment until you're forced into a situation where you, re you realize that that moment is not possible to happen for you. But with the advent of technology, um, we, can, we can believe that it is. And I think of so much of who we are is what we believe and mm -hmm. what, what we believe is happening. The story we're telling ourselves was that my, my I was telling myself my audience was there like it always was. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'd love to. Um, yeah, he he might be a, a guest eventually for the podcast to talk to Cherith and and other people who are finding ways of of creating those those audience connections between people. Um, and so so going back to. Um, Going back to your childhood, because this is a this is a therapy session as much as it is. Just kidding. <laughs> no, um, no, but uh, I was curious. Did you at when like when did you feel that music was gonna be big in your life? Was there a moment? Was there a piece of music? Was there a performance? Was there kind of a moment that you felt like okay, this is gonna be big for me, or did it just kind of develop slowly? Uh, I, I think this answer is, may not be exactly the question you're asking, but there was a point of playing violin between seven and eight years. So 14 to 15 years old, where I came to a, a realization that I was turning the corner between the violin being the boss of me and me being the boss of the violin. It's like, I, I am, in, you know, once I gained that sense of control of the process I, and I wasn't, you know, I was only 14, give me a break. I mean, and I'm still trying to master the, the violin. So that's a, a lifetime of, of work, but there was a psychological change of that. This is a voice for, for me of me that I am responsible for and I control. And I think, and that was, by the way, not far away from the time where um, I uh, was called in from the yard in elementary school by one of the teachers and was arguing with her that, you know, we should be allowed out there to play because it was our recess time and it was, wasn't fair that she was telling us we couldn't play in some part of the yard. And she looked at me and she said, you know, 
you should be a constitutional lawyer. And that stuck in my head. You know, I mentioned it earlier. It was like uh, these ideas that, that bounce around, you know, I, I'm, I'm all about justice. I've been anguished, you know, over, over the uh, politics of the world for the last few years in particular. And, but back to your point, there was a, there was the psychological point where I felt that if I, I felt a song or if I heard a song, I could sing a song in the shower, I could come out of the shower, dry off and play that song as a part of my language capability. I, if I knew what it was, I could work it out. Not necessarily play it perfectly immediately, but, and that gave me a kind of a sense of entitlement that I had a voice for music and that required you know many more years of study and many years of practice but uh it kind of cemented that the the point of your question where where I I wanted to be a musician like I knew that I wanted to go in music and be a musician the other motivator for that was I grew up in a family that was middle class. My dad was a cantor. My mom was a music teacher at a state college. We were not wealthy. We didn't take big vacations. My parents were both modest salaries and we had a, we had a sort of a middle class existence, but we knew people who were taking vacations and going to, off to France for the summer and blah, blah, blah. And I would hear these things and I had a certain kind of wanderlust. I was fascinated with other parts of the world. And I, and I always knew from the time I was a little kid that I wanted to travel. And I really made the connection that music would, could be the thing that would facilitate that for me. And that was a big motivator. My desire to see the world connected to my ability to be a musician and be a performer made a, was a fit. I could see a, that there was a life there for me that I was motivated towards. and. I can tell you now that I've been to a long list of countries. I've always had, it's always been a joyful experience to explore new places, even if I want to get home as soon as possible from some of them. Everywhere I travel, I, I, I experience a certain sense of wonder, even in, you know, even domestically. Whenever I'm going somewhere, the excitement is, it's that same seven-year-old kid that said, well, you know, one day I'm going to be a musician and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go places. I'm going to play for people. and It's going to be awesome. And they're going to love it. They're going to love me. And I'm going to, it's going to be fun, you know, and that, that is the nugget of, uh, uh, of what, why I started and, and continue to work with my ensemble with Quartet San Francisco is because of that kid that that really believed that being a musician was going to be a hundred percent awesome that kid knew nothing about admin and this kid knows only a little more yeah. about the world of the 90 percent of admin that it takes to facilitate that 10 percent of joy yeah really cool with quartet san francisco some of the some of the places we've gotten to go and um it's one of the perks of being a musician it's amazing but but yes, it does require a lot of back end, <laughs> a lot more than meets the eye to any than in, any non musician might suspect. But it's worth it. So I hope that answers the question. You know, that was sort of the turning point about me, me and musician. And also, it wasn't an odd thing to do. It was a thing that people in my family were already in. So it didn't. It wasn't like going into rocket science. That would have been weird. 
or a mathematician, you know, or, or a veterinarian for that matter. I mean, we liked pets, but, you know, <laughs> we were in a family of doctors, you know, as music was sort of a, 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 a you know, a no, not noble, but normal and a reasonable career to go into. I've, um, I asked that question just as a teacher that I spend a good amount of my time working with students and families varying ages and backgrounds and I just always find it interesting to see how one's upbringing results in making a musician and somehow like I think there's a um, there's like a search for for excellence there's like a search for artistic fulfillment that it's hard like if it's hard to see, know exactly it's kind of mysterious where does it come from you know um, but I think it's a, it's a series of factors and it sounds like your, your family and your personal, your personality and your interests and your aptitude for the instrument all kind of came together in your per pursuing it. Um, and then like going right along with that, I want to ask about your teachers. So um, I believe you studied with uh, Ann Crowden, right? Yes, I did. So do you, what were your experiences with her? What were some like takeaways studying with her? Anne was uh, led, she led from dedication to music. All of her decisions along the chain below that and how she dealt with her students and with the community were stood in service of our, of our finest possible performance. Uh, and so Anne, uh, other than that, her, her real specialty was development of right arm, bow arm, uh, sound. You know, you could always tell an Ann Crowden student because they generally had beautiful bow arms and lovely sound to this day. You know, if you listen to a Crowden player, one of the really features of people that studied with her is a, is a really wonderful sounding bow arm. Um, and fierce dedication to music also a complete intolerance of people that were not with the program. Uh, uh, she was, she was in, in, extremely uh, impatient with people that were not ready to do the work and get into the, the study of fundamentals and artistic process. Like you're in for this or go do something else because you're wasting my time. <laughs> so she really was a huge influence uh and i and and uh for 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 ethics for musical ethics she had studied she had played with simon goldberg in the chamber music of the i think netherlands and um came from you know uh really uh, uh high quality musical uh per, musical pursuit of artistry at the center of what they did not so much the technical school or the East Coast Juilliard School of, you know, technical accuracy as much as beauty of sound and, and dedication to, to music for its emotional gift uh, and how to facilitate technique towards that. So Anne, Anne was a great one to, for, my, if, if, for my musical ethics. Like my group knows I can be a real pain in the ass at, at any given time, but I think that most that my group trusts that in most cases, whether no matter what difficulty I have with communications, my dedication is to our best 
playing and our best psychological state to bring our best to the music that we play, that being, you know, primary. So Anne was, you know, great for that. And then there's a Crowden School in Berkeley, of course, that carries her name and we lost her far too soon. And uh, maybe one of the two toughest performances I ever gave in my life was having to come back from school in New York and play for her, hmm. <laughs> you know? I was I was always nervous because she she had she held very high expectations for, for all of her students, and she really held us to a higher standard at an at an age when it really mattered. Four, 14 to sixteen, fourteen to seventeen years old. You know, if you get it right, then then you're really then then she knew she could put us on the right path, and she did it with so many kids. Sorry, my uh, my f I. This is just unspeakable. But my phone notifications are on. Okay, there we go. I just turned it off. How dare I? Um, okay, so Anne Crowden, did you? Can you remember any of like the the um, exercises, the things she had you do with your right arm? Yeah, she damn near killed me with Kreutzer Seven <laughs> with Martelet. Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of focus and discussion of bow arm um, uh, relaxation, sensation of gravity keeping the center of gravity low in the right arm where, um, you know, your high fit school of players really plays with an elevated shoulder. She was into creating, you know, warm and buttery sound. I, I had a lot of sound work also with that teacher. I can't remember his name after her, but, uh, um, uh, you know, her, uh, so Kreutzer, I played, um, Brahms sonatas, Mozart sonatas with her, some Mozart concertos, Probably I had started on the brook and I played the Mendelssohn with her. I played Mozart five with the Sonoma State uh, Orchestra where I went and studied with her after a year in Berkeley. I had two years with her at Sonoma State. Um, uh, you know, that was the middle of the Kreutzer period. I, have, I, was, I had studied with Zavin Malikian and some other teachers, Dan Kobialka here in, in the Bay Area. And, but that those years, you know, Kreutzer, Etudes are a couple of years along with the Bach sonatas. I studied the G minor Bach suite with primarily with Anne Crowden and with a little summer uh, jaunts with other teachers, but primarily with her. A lot of, she was a Bach and Mozart and sound specialist. So she stayed in chamber music, in sonatas a lot. And she had us play concertos because she knew the kids needed to do competitions and go to college and learn concerto rep. But her thing was really in Mozart sonatas, Brahms sonatas, uh, and chamber music, string quartet literature. I got a ton of that, ton of string quartet training mm -hmm. from her and Colin Hampton of the Griller Quartet and other Bay Area musicians, um, you know, Bonnie Hampton, Roy Milan, um, some of that whole you know, that whole uh, era of 70s and 80s and 90s Bay Area, um, uh, fantastic chamber music opportunities here that's, coming up. Yeah, that's amazing. And I never got a chance to work with Bonnie Hampton, but I, I, I got to work with um, Zavin Malikian a little bit and, and Roy Milan as well. So mm -hmm. Bonnie. Bonnie's, Bonnie's back here. She's still around and she's... Uh, She's recently come on Facebook, so maybe we can maybe we could play for her sometime. That would be really awesome. Amazing. Yeah.
And um, so then, you know, there was that, um, oh, I was going to say, uh, just on the, on the teaching side, it sounds like she did. I think there is a, um, a tendency with teachers because they're such a, it's such a competitive uh, field with people who are playing at such a high level. There's such an emphasis on technique and high technical achievement where maybe a lot of teachers might not place such an early emphasis on musical ethics and on communication and on like chamber music like Ann Crowden did. So I think that's interesting. She focused on that. All of her kids had to be in a chamber music ensemble from early on, as soon as they could, they were, it was a part of their reality. And that still continues to this day, even though she's passed away, all the kids in the Crowden school have lessons and they also have chamber groups. Chamber music is a very strong component of, of, of creating a well-rounded uh, musician because you can play all the etudes and concertos you want, but if you, you know, music's a social sport and chamber music is the ultimate, you know, the ultimate expression of the social uh, uh, style of the communicative style of, of performing. Yeah, an orchestra, everybody follows a conductor, you know, and that's one person, one, all, all follow one. That's the sort of an industrial age model of, of music where, you know, a thousand people get together and make a Model T or 85 people get together and follow a conductor and you play the great works. That's great. It's not to be underestimated, but the, the chamber music and a string quartet takes for people connecting with each other in a constant stream of communication, if it's going to be what it's supposed to be. And right. she saw the value of that. I found for myself that like, obviously when I, when I was growing up, I played um, with my brother, he was a mandolinist. We did some kind of bluegrass uh, stuff. So we would improvise a little bit together and, and that was very collaborative. Um, and, and I would jam a little bit with musicians in the, in San Luis Obispo area, but but really, it wasn't until years later when I came to San Francisco Conservatory, where they had, you know, Mark Sokol and Jody Levitz and John Michel Fontenot and Axel Strauss and all these, and Ian Swenson, all these great chamber music coaches where they took, it was similar, it was like chamber music, you were doing chamber music, if, I mean, that was not even a question. And, um, and you weren't preparing a movement, you were preparing an entire piece, at least per semester. And it was just, I think the first semester was a little shell shock for me because I had been kind of trying to focus on, okay, how do I get, how do I play this violin, you know? And then all of a sudden the chamber music opened up this whole like, oh, I have to think about violin and all, <laughs> and be aware and follow and lead and all this. So I think it was, um, it was quite a, uh, an adjustment, but, but it's, I mean, that's music, it's pure music making. It's, it's kind of improvising. You're you're reading off of each other in the moment, and yeah, I'm I'm very grateful that my my professional life allows um, me to play in a string quartet because that's like in some ways the the purest the purest communication. So yeah, it's it's pretty fun. I, I think all the great composers too, you know, Brahms, Beethoven, uh, Schubert, Mendelssohn, they all recognized that uh, you know any chord can be expressed in three or four notes. So the string quartet is the smallest configuration in which music can exist in, in a sense in its purest form. Uh, the, and, and the challenge of writing for string quartet. I remember when we first 
when I first started talking to Gordon Goodwin, one of our composers that uh, we play his works in Quartet San Francisco, we had this conversation that, that composers really feel that if you can write for string quartet, you can probably write for anything. You can just take four voices, all the notes of the chord would be represented until you're juxtaposing three or four chords and making lots of noise. You know, but in, it, in its traditional sense, you know, harm, Western harmonies are, uh, the, the string quartet is one of the most pure and challenging forms for composition. And those composers wrote extensively to hone their skills in those. We have the evidence of it in the Mozart quartets and in, in the Mendelssohn quartets and Dvorak quartets and, you know, on and on and on. Those are, those are some of the finest works of those composers because it's condensed. Is that how, so, I mean, um, I feel like we could talk for another few hours about, about all, all sorts of things, and I, I don't want to take up your, your time too much, but I think that's a good, um, a good segue to talk about how did you um, get into writing for, for string quartet and, and kind of composing and arranging? Simple answer for that one. I, I was playing in a quartet for San Francisco Symphony doing education in the schools. And frankly, I just got tired of the literature that we were having to dig through to put together a show. I had all this music in my head and I, and, uh, I thought, you know, I could see that the kids would, would respond to music they knew in a way that was different. They still appreciated our classical music concerts and, and presentations. But for example, when our colleague Emily uh, on the viola player, Emily, Emily Ondergunk would demonstrate the Pink Panther, I could see the kids in the room vibrating, you know, just vibrating on the floor, like, oh my God, I know this. I see this in the cartoons. I know that this is my music. And that, that in itself, I just looked around the room and I, I would drive home and I'd be thinking to myself, why can't we get the kids to respond that way to our other piece? What's wrong? What are we doing? What's wrong? You know. I, and I would troubleshoot it and troubleshoot it and troubleshoot it. And, I, and then I thought, well, you know, here's a piece of music that really lights me up. Why don't I just try arranging it? You know, and then boom, that was the little kernel of popcorn that, that blew up. And then, you know, I did it. I did the arrangement of Pink Panther. And then I thought, well, when I was a kid, I loved Blue Rondo a la Turk. I used to listen to it. And then boom, I did an arrangement of that. And from, from one piece came another piece, came another piece, boom became Quartet San Francisco. So it was a need to express the music of that meant something in, in our lives with our music, not just the music of, of uh, long past wonderful composers. But I, I don't have the context for Mozart's music in Mozart's time. Mm -hmm. But I do have the context of the Beatles. I do have the context of Stevie Wonder in my life and what it means. And if I can do that on the violin, then I'm, then I'm really connecting in a way with my current self and I'm performing better and I'm more invigorated to do it. And did you, did you compose before or did you start composing as an outgrowth of the arranging? That you I played in bands and improv and improv in itself is composition. If you just improv it and then write it down, you in fact become a composer. Um, uh, but then you also have to learn the skills. I had tinkered around and written a couple of little tunes 
but I remember even being in college, you know, I hadn't, I had sketched out a few things, but it wasn't until I um, was functioning in a quartet and, and just realizing that we were, there was a dearth, there was a hole, a black hole in that, where is the music of our lives with this ensemble? And I, you know, I, I did the bootstrap thing, you know, I pulled up my bootstraps and I said, okay, I'm going to start. And I had the luxury of a quartet to try stuff out on my, my poor colleagues. <laughs> I begged five minutes on their breaks to, instead of going out and getting fresh air to read through my new arrangement and I beta tested it and, you know, studied a little bit of composition, but mostly on the, on the ground. And, um, I was gonna just for before I we couldn't leave um, we couldn't leave off without mentioning that 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 no name teacher that that's kind of hard oh. to name but uh, yeah. since this podcast I'll, I'll have to have you back on and and talk more about uh, the the origin story of uh, Quartet San Francisco and your your com compositions and and books and everything but but well, as this one's more about teaching um, yeah why don't you tell us about how Sort of you got to know Itzhak Perlman. Well, I'll just do that as an introduction to part two because I I have to actually go in a, in a in a minute. But Ann Crowden, I studied with Ann Crowden for three years, and she we when we were talking about where to go and what to do, you know, to go to, go to college, I said, well, you know, there's a good teacher in Oberlin, and there's a good teacher in Texas, and she looked at me and she said, she looked at me and she said, young man you go somewhere, you don't, you don't go from San Francisco to Ohio. You don't go from San Francisco to Texas. You either go to New York, you go to London, you go to Paris, you go to somewhere where the world is fully developed and music is at its, no disrespect to, to Ohio and Texas. There's fantastic music there and wonderful musicians and teachers, but she really felt like she wanted to push me towards somewhere where I would get maximum exposure to the full-on world of professional music. And a past student of hers had gone on to study in New York at Brooklyn College with Itzhak Perlman. And we thought we had, you know, I thought I had a, because I knew a student of his, I could inquire and check out. And uh, I was really nervous at first and I auditioned for his, I wanted to get to New York to study with Perlman, but I wanted to guarantee that I would get in front of him. And I didn't want to take the risk of him, of auditioning for him and having him possibly turn me down. So I auditioned for his assistant and I studied with her and got to know him through the masterclass process. So I got myself into his audience and eventually, uh, after a semester or two, I, I approached him and I said, look, you know, uh, I, I'd love to take lessons. When you have a space in your class, would you please consider taking me? And the next semester, he took me and uh, developed, uh, I went to his apartment and took lessons for him. That was the other really super difficult playing situation for me was standing in Itzhak Living Room's it's a Perlman's living room. It's a living room's Perlman yeah. and, and having to play for him. But he had that wonderful personality that was very disarming. And eventually, you know, you could uh, relax and, and play. And he, he made a lot of jokes. He still makes a lot of jokes. And 
but uh, I got in his class at Brooklyn College and stayed there for a, 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 another year and a half with studying with Perlman. And I'll be glad to talk more about that on our, on, on our part two. Excellent, that's we have excellent cliffhanger. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Have you as our first guest on the Sounding Point podcast. And, it's an uh, honor. Thank Congratulations, you. Joe, on, a, on, a, on, your, on your podcast, on, on your swanky tie. Oh yeah, and, and all of the above. It's and it's a joy to work with you, and a pleasure to know you. Likewise, thank you. All right, well, I'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you on the next one. Take care. Take care.